the Manufacturer Podcasts are sponsored by Sage, helping manufacturers perform at their best. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash perform. And a very warm welcome to another podcast from the Manufacturer Editorial Team. A somewhat depleted team today is just me and Rory Butler because our colleague Johnny Williamson is on paternity leave. Many congratulations to him and to Alex on the arrival of baby Juno. Really happy news. Well done, Johnny and Alex. And of course, Juno. Uh, we are, however, delighted to be joined by Dan Kamatsis, who runs the Manufacturer Community. Dan, a warm welcome to you. Hi, Nick. How's the community going? This is a, a wonderful development that uh, you're helming on behalf of the manufacturer. Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So the community is a collaborative platform uh, for manufacturers across the UK and also across the world. Uh, we've got manufacturers signing up from the Netherlands, India, America, and across the UK at the moment. Um, it's a platform for manufacturers to come together and get answers to their questions, um, challenges that they may be facing. It's a great way to connect with manufacturers. Um, you know, social media channels uh, like LinkedIn and Twitter are great to connect with many different people, but there's no platform dedicated just to manufacturing, and that's what we're creating here at The Manufacturer. Well, that's brilliant news. Uh, I mean, I obviously know about it, but uh, I'm hoping that our listeners will go out and investigate it. Is there an easy link you can... I know it's not easy to put a link out over podcasts, but uh, what should people be uh, searching for on, uh, on Google or whichever search engine they use? Yeah, absolutely. So if they just type in community.themanufacturer.com, and then they will find a sign-up button uh, when they reach the community homepage. I think this is really important. I think that uh, the future of uh, manufacturing, in fact, the future of any business really is about collaboration. I think uh, red and tooth and claw competition is, uh, is so 20th century, 21st century is about collaboration. This is a great contribution, Dan. I'm going to come back to you in a second because we're going to be talking about uh, the annual manufacturing report, which I know you've been uh, doing some blogging about uh, on, on the community site. Uh, but I want to talk about another book we published this week. It's called The Manufacturer Opus, subtitled The Best Manufacturers in Britain. Uh, it's an absolutely beautiful book. It, it contains profiles of the companies that were the finalists in the Manufacturer MX, that's Manufacturing Excellence Awards, in 2019. Um, it's a heck of a high bar uh, to, to reach just to be a finalist, let alone to win. And so the companies that are, in there, that are in there genuinely can be called the best manufacturers in Britain. Rory, you were putting that book together. You edited all the profiles. Uh, what's your takeaway from the book? Uh, well, as you say, Nick, the bar to be featured in the Opus is extremely high, but I feel like the full range of companies, be it BMW, right through to Crystal Doors or IMI Precision Engineering, all really rose to the challenge and exemplified everything that's good about British manufacturing. Really dedicated, working hard to improve you know, their innovation, their sustainability and skills piece right across the board. And as you say, it's a beautiful book, so I hope people who do receive it and read it uh, enjoy what we've put together for them. 
it was a brilliant effort, Rory. And uh, we, 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 obviously we do it every year, but every time it comes out, I keep thinking, my golly, what a fantastic array of, uh, of companies we've got in the sector. The other book that came out this week was one that I put together. It was the annual manufacturing report. Um, this is based on a survey we do. We, we got about 350 or more, I think, responses to our survey, asking questions across a range of subjects such as business transformation, cybersecurity, smart factory, finance and investment, and people and skills. I had a whale of a time putting it together. Dan, you've been blogging about the book um, on, on the community website, and uh, I'm, I'm interested to get your take on it, because it's always interesting to hear what other people think of uh, what one's produced. It's obviously clear from those surveyed, the majority of manufacturers understand the importance of adopting digital technologies and embracing the technologies which form Industry 4.0. But sentiment and adoption are quite separate things. And there is still some way to go until the factory of the future becomes a reality for the majority of manufacturing businesses. Um, Rory, um, this week we not only had the AMR and we had the Opus and we launched Digital Manufacturing Week 2020 at the House of Lords, but we also put the magazine to bed, uh, put it to press. You had uh, a number of stories in there. Which one really stood out for you? Earlier uh, this month, we visited the University of Warwick, which many people will know uh, has the uh, uh, Warwick Manufacturing Group there. And uh, we were invited to a special demonstration of um, driverless pods, which have been manufactured by Origo, which is the autonomous division of the manufacturing RDM group, which is a family-owned business in Coventry, founded in about 1993. Um, and they've partnered with WMG, uh, and uh, which is part of the high-value manufacturing catapult, to make a fleet of driverless pods, which are designed for use in first and last mile service. So that would be in transporting uh, people from their home to the nearest largest transportation hub, be that a bus station or a, uh, an airport, and, uh, and back again. It's a £2 million project. Uh, it's been running for two years, and uh, it's backed by Innovation UK. And uh, it appears that they've, they've made a, a success of it because they, they've mastered the swarming technology. Um, They've got these uh, driverless pods to platoon, which run on a 48-volt uh, battery and have a driving range of about 50 kilometers. They've had successes in Canada, Australia, Finland, Singapore, Vietnam, and, uh, and now in the, UK, in the UK, where they've supplied a set of emission-free dollies to uh, Heathrow, which are being used in Terminal 5, um, and that's being supported by BA. And uh, essentially, it's transporting luggage, uh, passenger luggage, from the airport terminal to the air, uh, to the aircraft, and um, relieving some of that uh, 
sort of manual labour work for some of the workforce at Heathrow Airport. That's that that, that is quite amazing. I, I I think we need to get hold of some video of that so we can have a look. Not very good for podcast purposes, of course. Rory, thank you for that. I know you've also been writing about coronavirus and the impact on the supply chain. Quite amazing that um, companies like JCB and JLR have been impacted quite so severely, so quickly. Um, Now, it was a real coincidence that one of the people you wrote about in your report, I just happened to have interviewed the day before uh, for the magazine. Uh, It was Professor Richard Wilding, who's a professor at the Centre for Logistics and Supply Chain Management at Cranfield University. We were supposed to be talking about the supply chain of the future and his vision of it, but it's very clear that current events like coronavirus are already changing the way that that future could develop. This is what he had to say. I think that the current uh, coronavirus um, outbreak is going to further act as a driver for for supply chains. So, you know, I've been working with a number of companies just in recent, um, uh, you know, recent weeks who this is actually quite critical because they've got the majority of their supply chain infrastructure and manufacturing based in China. And I think this is actually acting as a driver then for further automation. So there's a couple of things that you're starting to think through that um, just with this particular situation, if nobody can get to work, um, what we need is um, uh, somehow uh, things to work on their own. So so effectively, you're starting to find that this can act for a driver for automation. So you need less people in particular facilities. Um, what you're also finding is, is do we really want to move goods around the world and the implications of that? So we are starting to see increased drivers for near, near sourcing. I think it was um, uh, quite, quite recently, actually, that um, Nike, uh, they sort of announced an aspiration, which I found quite interesting, which was what they were talking about was a future model of installing uh, 1,200 new automated machines, which were basically 3D printers that would enable near-shoring, reduced shipping expenses, import duties, overproduction risks, 30% fewer steps, and also 50% fewer people. So, you know, on a current supply chain model of uh, 1 million workers in 566 factories, 75 distribution centers, and 30,000 retailers. So you, you start to suddenly see that, you know, we are... I've been saying that, you know, the planets are aligning around Industry 4.0, which is then driving supply chains to look differently. If we then look at the drivers for zero uh, zero carbon, that is going to mean, for example, that we're going to have to actually uh, move more bulk um, on rail. Um, because that is going to be one of the only ways we're going to be able to do that. So we're going to find uh, more trunking by rail, for example, um, just because of you know the need for potentially using electrification in that uh, particular situation, um, with regard to um, uh, you know friction in terms of borders and controls and everything else, I'll be quite honest. I think that by 2040 uh, things will be pretty frictionless. Yes, there will be some challenges, but if you're looking at the technology which is being utilised across the supply chain. Most of all the paperwork, all the things that could potentially delay us, passport checks, for example, um, there's a very strong 
possibilities but by 2040 most of that can just be automated it might be on by you know um, um, uh, already I mean we've been hearing in recent weeks about how uh, China are able to recognize people through facial recognition and are um, using that in as part of dealing with certain challenges in terms of you know the current uh, coronavirus situation but that technology of course can be used elsewhere to actually speed checks on people and so on and so forth so it might sound big brotherish but we are going to be able to do that no, another thing um, virtual way bridges so using camera systems using just pads in the road um, and various other things you're very quickly able to identify the weight look at seals on lorries and so on and so forth so with the technology that we have available ultimately we could um, completely change the way that we manage uh, customs interventions and so on and so forth and reducing the risk of moving things around so therefore would be in a situation where you know things could become increasingly frictionless part of the challenge has been of course is that um, most organizations in, in Europe we haven't had a burning platform where we've had to basically say we're going to change so um, in some quarters are actually arguing that um, the way that we manage things in Europe is relatively primitive in comparison to other nations in the world. I wonder if we can just pick up uh, for, for, to begin with on what you were saying about Nike because the, the concept of uh, small factory units being distributed, uh, a large number of them being distributed uh, across population areas so that uh, transportation costs are minimized, you can um, buy to order and, and, and basically take huge chunks of the supply, supply chain out of the equation. It, how is it going to be possible to have a multiplicity of products operating like that? Um, I, I just wonder if you've thought about how that might work well one of the one of the key things that is um is being very much i mean one of the things that we do lots of work on is what we call form postponement so if you think about supply chains when we were getting increasingly concerned about peak oil remember that one from a few years ago yeah um, one of the things that that was actually driving was the reconfiguration of supply chains and um, a part of the thought processes then was that you might globally ship what was called vanilla product. So vanilla product would then be customized in the local marketplace for, you know, for the consumers in the way that they want it. So really what we will still find, of course, is global flows of raw materials. But what we might find is that the final manufacturing, the final configuration is taking place increasingly, uh, increasingly locally. And of course, that also enables people to keep um, keep supply chains down. So we we're really talking about you know the postponement um, of um, of the you know the the final configuration of the product as late as possible in in the in that product's journey. And that's also good news in terms of the way that you use resources because you're not having to forecast so many products. What you do is you forecast, if you like, the elements which you can manage in a lean way, you know, which is, you know, highly predictable. But then generally it's the customer at the end who is, you know, creating the unpredictability. So then you need the agile supply chain to really make that work. And I think that that's actually interesting because we're already talking about in some, um, in some quarters, you know, the concept of uh, the whole issue of, um, 
uh, the bimodal supply chain, which is uh, very important to think about. So, you know, mode one is the focus on predictability or lean, and that's, if you like, the traditionally where we've been. But mode two is focus on exploration. It's all about agility, speed, it's dynamic, it's iterative. And the, the challenge is for organizations now is they have to do both modes simultaneously to really, um, to really operate operate effectively and and have if you like a culture where you yep there'll be certain bits of the business which will work in a very very lean way but other bits where you you've just got to have agility to be able to cope and configure products and i think that you know these technologies for example additive manufacturing which uh, you know um, uh, nike's um, exploring the use of um, that will enable us to actually be far more agile in terms of what's happening the other technologies, of course, that we should be thinking about, uh, AI, obviously, and blockchain. Uh, blockchain is, is, is sort of touted as being the, 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 the great hope of future supply chain uh, security of information and transparency. Do you think it's going to be front and center of the future supply chain? I believe that by 2040, um, we will have some sort of blockchain, but I don't think, um, if you're looking at the sustainability of the way blockchain works, um, if, if you think just on Bitcoin, the amount of computing power, the impact on the environment and everything else that that, that blockchain is having um, on the planet, um, it is not sustainable that every supply chain operates in a similar mode. Now the concept, the overall concept of blockchain, I think is an excellent excellent concept, but at the moment we've probably got, if you like, the computing and algorithms aren't quite right. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, blockchain is, you know, I, I often say to our students here at Cranfield, it's actually a very simple concept when you actually think about it. There's only, there's only three elements to it. You've got um, in, encryption, okay? So you've got the encryption element, You've then got, um, you know, this distributed ledger where everybody has a version of the truth and everybody has to agree to change that version of the truth. And then finally, really, the key, the key thing is we have rules and protocols about how we manage that. Um, you know, Bitcoin, which often people talk about, yep, that has particular rules and protocols. But the problem is with that, that is using incredible amounts of computing power in terms of the encryption side of things and also in terms of the, um, uh, you know, just trying, trying to manage the rules they've put in place. But from a supply chain perspective, you know, there are great opportunities because if you think about it, every bit of supply chain data could be put into some sort of blockchain structured file uh, system. And various parties can have keys to open elements of, of that file, but not see everything. Whereas you might say that customs can open every single lock on the door, as it were, to get total transparency of what's actually going on. Um, I, I think the principle is excellent, but at the moment, is this going to be something that we're going to be able to roll out across the supply chains? Um, using, if you like, our current way of thinking around the computing, I don't think it is because of the impact on, on um, you know, just the impact on the environment and the amount of energy which is required to do that. I think what we'll probably find is a similar sort of approach, but it will have, um, you know, a different it'll be a different way of doing it which is less um less it less impactful on the planet for example 
I, I think that any manufacturer listening to this is thinking to themselves, oh, my Lord, yet more disruption in the coming years and decades. Um, other things that we have to prepare for and yet more cost and investment and who knows which direction is going to be the right way to go. So often um, evolution can appear quite revolutionary to those who are having to sort of decide at which point to jump on a very fast moving conveyor belt. Uh, I'm wondering if there isn't a danger in this that that, that, that uh, it's not all going to be terribly smooth and that some people risk getting hurt in the process. I, I don't think there's any doubt that there will be organizations which in 2040 will no longer exist and these will be very big organizations that we hear about today i mean if we just look at the you know the organizations over the last 20 years which have um, you know sort of reached their pinnacle and then gone into decline and have more or less fallen off the radar um, in supply chain terms you know there are quite a quite a large number of them and so yes uh, these disruptions are going to cause some significant changes. I think that the, the I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? If I'm working with people on forecasting, for example, I generally say that, you know, there's only two types of forecast. There's lucky ones and wrong ones. So, you know, if at all possible, don't bother doing either of them. Um, you, you're best off actually having a system which doesn't need to forecast. In other words, you're sort of, you're adaptable enough. It, it, that mode two, which I talked about, you know, having that agility enables you to actually respond and move as the markets, as these, as these you know, these disruptions occur. And, and I also think that, you know, if we look back, the challenge that we've had is that a lot of the ways in which we have manufactured um, and um, done stuff in the past is at a point now where we're having to question are they appropriate so for example I work in a business school if we look at the teachings on leadership during the 70s and 80s um, which uh, you know have been out there for you know quite a while and you have developed over very many years um, one of the big questions now is is people are saying well is that appropriate for what we're trying to do so there's now modern leadership theories which talk about collaborative leadership shared leadership approaches and so on and so forth rather than you know hierarchical um, more hierarchical leadership approaches if we look at the skills which people need um, you know to operate in industry now that has also completely and utterly changed and so in a way what we're starting to say is you know the the, the, the old way of working, the way that we worked, you know, probably from um, post-war post to 2010 was one way of, um, you know, doing things. And we were work focused on a particular way of working. Now, all of, the thing, all of a sudden, things are changing dramatically. And I think that what we're going to find is, is that over the next sort of 20 years, the way we do business, the way we interact with our customers that is going to change and therefore that is going to mean that um, suppliers and supplier suppliers are all going to need to change as well. 
Professor Richard Wilding from the Centre for Logistics and Supply Chain Management at Cranfield University. Well, a few minutes ago, uh, Dan was talking to us about the annual manufacturing report, which we published this week. We're not the only ones to have put out a pretty important piece of research. Our sponsors, Sage, put out a white paper called Discrete Manufacturing in a Changing World, Leaping Hurdles and Identifying Opportunities. Well, we wanted to find out a bit more about what was in the report, so my colleague Nicholas Cox went to meet Robert Sinfield, who's Vice President Product at Sage Business Cloud X3, and he asked him, what are you trying to say with this white paper? I think what we're trying to say with this white paper is that the UK manufacturing is in a much better state than people think. Uh, Looking at the report, it's clear to see that the UK is ahead of our brothers and sisters in places like the US and Australia and Europe in terms of the adoption of the circular economy and servitization. So the report is subtitled Leaping Hurdles and Identifying Opportunities. According to the report, what are the hurdles in terms of UK manufacturing? From the report, it's clear to see that things like cloud adoption, the adoption of new technology are challenging for uh, UK manufacturers. The other thing that came out from the report is that there are a number of other things that are impacting them in terms of the adoption of things like the circular economy and servitization. So it's not as easy to to jump across that, that divide and start to deliver these new services. But there is ultimately a massive opportunity in terms of what manufacturers have said. So looking at the report, manufacturers have said that by adopting programs like servitization and the circular economy, they've seen benefits to their organization. Let's look at that in a little bit more detail, particularly the circular economy. According to the annual manufacturing report that we've published recently, a large majority of manufacturers see the drive for sustainability as an opportunity to transform their business positively. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't. Um, I think it's quite clear to see, just looking at, again, at some of the, the outputs of the report, that lowering carbon footprint will ultimately lower costs for these manufacturers. So that was something that came out of the report. And the other thing that came out of the report is that manufacturers are doing this to gain uh, favor with and goodwill from consumers. So there's a, a real reason to do that, and, and people are starting to look at Uh, companies who are actively promoting that they're carbon neutral or or pursuing a a green agenda going forward. Let's look at another one of the pillars uh, of your report, servitization, which is changing traditional business models. Do you believe this is a way for manufacturers to compete with overseas companies that can offer lower prices but not necessarily a better service? Definitely, I do think that is a a way that UK manufacturers can compete with lower, uh, lower cost alternatives. The idea of having one throw to choke in terms of somebody who manufactures the product can uh, install and provision the, the, the product and then ultimately service and look after it and extend the economic life of that product is a massive plus. If you then factor in the change in model in terms of how you purchase that cost, UK manufacturers that can offer uh, an operating expenditure model or a subscription-based licensing or usage model will be far more attractive than having to buy something that may have a very large capital outlay at the beginning that will over time not necessarily give you the same benefits. Once you factor in the the, the cost element plus the overall service plus the the ability to work with the person who knows the product best, that makes uh, a servitization strategy very attractive for both businesses consuming that but also businesses delivering that into the market. The research showed that a number of these companies that are pursuing the strategy is because they get that higher level of market share from these businesses. 
So in terms of Industry 4 Technologies, the report says that a significant number of UK manufacturing businesses are finding it challenging or extremely challenging to introduce cloud computing infrastructure. Why do you think companies like Stage can make their life easier? So I think this is a really interesting question. One of the reasons why companies are struggling to adopt cloud infrastructure is that A, there are, there are underlying infrastructural problems in the UK in terms of high speed uh, fiber and broadband. It's not available everywhere, everywhere across the UK and probably not available where a lot of the manufacturing companies are. So I think that's a challenge because you need to be connected all the time to be able to access some of these capabilities. If you're, for example, in a high-velocity manufacturing environment and you're connected to a manufacturing execution system that's in the cloud, any form of latency could register as a, a dip in operational equipment efficiency. So I think until we solve those, some of those infrastructural problems, the cloud is not necessarily the answer for everybody. But if you look at uh, what manufacturers have said in this report, the majority of them, the vast majority of them, are at least consuming one or more cloud services at this stage. So think about things like uh, their CRM solutions. Think about HR and payroll solutions. Those are generally in the cloud and people are, are adopting those, where industry research shows that cloud adoption of those types of services is over 85% even today. So going forward, I think they will start to look at that. But we're going to see a different type of um, environments and this is where Sage is really starting to invest in both cloud native solutions which are in the cloud but also this idea of a hybrid deployment where there are some solutions available on premises because of proximity and the, the types of capabilities that are needed that make more sense so this is one of the things that Sage is doing to help our our customers by delivering a, a large variety of choice so financials in the cloud, people and HR in the cloud, but potentially manufacturing solutions and operations uh, capabilities on premises or deployed in a hosted environment managed by the customer or by a partner. The report also talks about the legislative and political challenges companies are facing. Brexit, GDPR obviously challenges, now there's coronavirus. These are all seriously difficult waters to navigate, are they not? I definitely think they are. If you look at the immense number of legislative changes taking place around the world, uh, look at the impact of things like uh, GDPR, which you mentioned, Brexit, that certainly slowed down investment from manufacturers. They're less likely to go out and spend money until they know what's happening. Um, but I think these things create opportunities as well. And some of the new legislations that are being introduced may actually help UK manufacturers to be more competitive. They'll level the playing field. Uh, make UK products potentially more attractive. Uh, the UK is used to legislative change, so again, where countries that have not previously had that level of legislative change are now experiencing that, it might be tougher for them to adopt, so it'll help UK manufacturers to catch up and leapfrog. So I don't think legislative change is necessarily a bad thing. It creates a lot of opportunity as well, and uh, I'm sure the UK can learn from some of the things around the adoption of GDPR and making tax digital and things like that. So UK manufacturers should be able to uh, more quickly adopt to changes in other countries as well because of some of the experiences back, here, back home here in the UK. In terms of servitization, which is one of the pillars of the report, um, often cited as an example of, of these service-driven businesses are companies like Rolls-Royce and Xerox and things like that. Um, to what extent can, the small, can smaller businesses exploit service-driven business models? So I think servitization as, a, as an overall concept immediately 
gets people to think of this idea that you have a service technician going out and fixing something or, or, or fine-tuning something like the examples that you gave Rolls-Royce or, or Xerox where somebody comes out and fixes the copier printer. I think for smaller organizations it offers them an ability to provide additional value as value-added manufacturers. I think servitization as an entire concept embodies this idea of value-added manufacturing, where it's maybe not just the product that you're providing, but it could be the, the knowledge, the know-how, the IP that you bring to that. So for engineering companies, it's going to allow them to provide a lot more uh, in terms of expert services around how the application of, what, what is the application of the product, how should it be used, how should it be optimized, uh, what's the best way to configure it. For other types of manufacturers that are potentially delivering um, more standardized componentry, maybe there's an option for them to look at servitization through a different lens in that they're not necessarily going in and provisioning the, the, the product because it doesn't require that level of complexity, but what they could do is swap in, swap out type uh, arrangements. So products with a limited shelf life could be swapped out on a, on a, base, on a regular basis at, a, at a, a lower cost than somebody buying them. So that's, a, again, a form of servitization. But it, what, what it does do is it creates a recurring revenue model for that manufacturer. And of course, we know from the software industry, for example, you look at companies that have a, a much higher recurring revenue uh, versus a, a sort of a one-soft uh, revenue model that they tend to have a much higher market valuation. And that means they can get access to funding and things like that. So it's a way of allowing these manufacturers to get access to things that they wouldn't necessarily have had before in terms of funding, investments, uh, making them more attractive in the market, but also getting more wallet share from their customers and creating a more sticky customer relationship. If we come back to that idea of a swap out, swap in uh, idea, if you can offer that at an attractive price, you're going to create customer loyalty. That customer is going to come back to you. As long as the service levels are there, they'll come back to you on a repeat basis. What that means is those customers are more sticky. And we all know it's more expensive to go and acquire a new customer rather than keep a customer happy. And that was Rob Sinfield, a vice president at Sage, talking to Nicholas Cox. Okay, gents, that's it for this podcast. Dan, thank you very much. Good luck with the community. Thanks, Nick. Remind us of the link one more time. It's community.themanufacturer.com. Brilliant. Rory, what's next on your agenda? Because uh, you're, you're lining up some, uh, some articles for the next magazine. Yep. Next up, uh, I'm planning to go and visit with Airbus down in Broughton. They've been working on an uh, innovation suite, which has taken the best part of a year uh, to bring to fruition. And they're using VR technology down there to upskill... Uh, some of their workforce and uh, they've got various other projects underway as part of that uh, innovation program so we'll be going to uh, catch up with their head of manufacturing and uh, see what's been going on so hopefully that's something everybody can look forward to in the next edition of The Manufacturer. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Rory. Rory, Dan, really pleased to have you along for the podcast today. Don't forget, the Manufacturer Podcasts are sponsored by Sage, helping manufacturers perform at their best. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash perform. That's sage.com forward slash perform. From me, Nick Peters, and everybody here at The Manufacturer, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>